Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Dwight, and my pronouns are he, him. Welcome to everyone here and out in, uh, in Zoom land. Uh, and I'd really like to thank everyone for the effort they put in, um, in every way to make today happen. I know it takes a lot of work for sound and video and planning and, and everything to put it all together. So um, thanks for everyone for making it happen. And actually, thanks for everyone for just blessing us with their present and just being and being here. Um, yeah. The theme of today's sermon, strangely enough, is mystery and changes that help us stand firm. Not sure what sense that makes, but hopefully by the end, um, it may make some sense. Um, I just wanted to let you know that there are kind of portions of the sermon today that are taken from uh, this book, uh, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And I haven't noted the quotes in a few places, but that's where some of it comes from. And I want to start by reading a little bit from the front, uh, very beginning of this book. And you'll have to excuse me, um, some, of the, some of the words are um, unknown to me in pronunciation, so I'll do my best to butcher them. At the heart of ancient Palestine is the region known as the Shephelah a series of ridges and valleys connecting the Judean mountains to the east with wide, flat expanse of the Mediterranean plain. It is an area of breathtaking beauty, home to vineyards and wheat fields and forests of sycamore and terbeth. It's also of great strategic importance. Over the centuries, numerous battles have been fought for the control of the region because the valleys rising from the Mediterranean plain offer those on the coast a clear path to the cities of Hebron, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem in the Jadean Highlands. The most important valley is the Ajalon in the north, but the most storied is the Allah. The Allah was where Saladin faced off against the Knights of the Crusade in the 12th century. It played a central role in the Maccabean Wars with Syria more than a thousand years before that, and most famously during the days of the Old Testament. It was where the fledgling kingdom of Israel squared off against the armies of the Philistines. The Philistines were from Crete. They were a seafaring people who moved to Palestine and settled along the coast. The Israelites were clustered in the mountains under the leadership of King Saul. And in the second half of the 11th century BC, the Philistines began moving east, winding their way upstream along the floor of the Allah Valley. Their goal was to capture the mountain ridge near Bethlehem and split Saul's kingdom in two. The Philistines were battle-tested and dangerous in the sworn enemies of Israelites. Alarmed, Saul gathered his men and hastened them down from the mountains to confront them. The Philistines set up camp along the southern ridge of the Allah. The Israelites pitched their tents on the other side, along the northern ridge, which left the two armies looking across the ravine at each other. Neither dared to move. To attack meant descending down the hill and then making a suicidal climb up the enemy's ridge on the other side. And finally, the Philistines had had enough. They sent their greatest warrior down into the valley to resolve the deadlock one-on-one. -on -one. He was a giant, six foot nine at least, wearing a bronze helmet and full body armor. He carried a javelin, a spear, and a sword. An attendant preceded him carrying a large shield. The giant faced the Israelites and shouted out, choose, a choose you a man and let him come down to me. If he prevail in battle against me and strike me down, we shall be slaves to you. But if I prevail and strike him down, you will be slaves to us and serve us. In the Israelite camp, no one moved. Who could win against such a terrifying opponent? 
Then a shepherd boy who had come down from Bethlehem to bring food to his brother stepped forward and volunteered. Saul objected. You cannot go against this Philistine to do battle with him, for you are a lad, and he is a man of war from his youth. But the shepherd was adamant. He had faced more ferocious opponent than this, he argued. When the lion or the bear should come and carry off a sheep from the herd, he told Saul, I would go after him and strike him down and rescue it from his clutches. Saul had no other options. He relented, and the shepherd boy ran down to the hill towards the giant standing in the valley. Come to me that I may give your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. The giant cried out when he saw his opponent approach. Thus began one of history's most famous battles. The, the giant's name was Goliath. The shepherd's boy's name was David. And David and Goliath is a book about what happens when ordinary people confront giants. And I think I've heard this sermon... Oops. Sorry. I've heard this sermon told many times. Um, where weak, small David faces off against a giant warrior. Of course, the odds are stacked against David, but with special help from God, David, preva David prevails. I've even heard it told that God must have propelled the stone with divine speed and strength to be able to kill the giant warrior. It's the story of a complete underdog winning in the face of unsurmountable odds. And the term David and Goliath has ever since meant facing off against something impossible, and somehow, almost miraculously, stunningly, unbelievably, wins. It's, it's unbelievable. It's impossible. Really, what did chance did a small, weak shepherd boy have? Well, what did David have? What did he come with? Well, for one, he had stories, legends that were real to him. David had been taught in, you know, the, about Abraham and Moses and, and strange stories that made no sense in a natural way. Waters being parted, plagues on oppressors, pillar of cloud by day to guide, pillar of fire by night, nature being redirected to help a helpless people. God cared about the small and the lowly. Why would an all-powerful God do that? It just was. It was a mystery, a wonder. I often wonder about that. Why is God good? And that kind of boggles my brain. God just is. But somehow the God that David knew cared. I was working on a renovation in a house recently and was listening to an old recording of um, Steve Belk. He's kind of a um, musician theologian. And, and it was called Rhyme and Reason. And he would talk for a bit and then he would play some songs and then he would talk for a bit and then he would play some songs again and it kept on going but one of the things he said was our present age takes all the wonder out of everything and I think that makes us dead the minute we bring back wonder God can speak and for him music makes, brings wonder back to theology scripture comes alive for me when I started reading psalms as poetry rather than as information dispensing who God is Poetry speaks way beyond the words themselves and strikes to the core of, of my being. And as I think about that, weren't many of the original psalms put to music? They were music. They were poetry. And they were meant to passionately move whoever listened to it. And recently I've read um, that um, our brains have parts dedicated to kind of logic and thinking and um, and parts dedicated to emotion. And it's really, really difficult for these two parts of emotion and thinking cognitive to connect. But something does help emotion and thinking connect. 
Any idea what helps emotion and thinking connect? Po um, art. Strangely enough, it's art. Music, pictures, paintings, sculptures, all those kind of things. When our brains connect through wonder or mystery with what we know, something happens, and it also almost propels us to a different kind of space or level. At work, um, Wendy and I craft poems, and we take our clients' words, and we craft them and sculpt them into a poem, and then we hand them back to them. And when they read that poem, it, it really shakes them sometimes, uh, just affects them right down to their core, but it's connecting this emotion and thought in some kind of way, and somehow they shift. I don't really understand how that works, but it seems to, and it's kind of a mystery, a little bit of a wonder. Their story in poetry really seems to shift them as, it's, as they read it back to themselves, and I think that's part of what the Bible is, this poetry. Um... I've studied systematic theology a bit, and I'll put my emphasis on a little bit. Um, and uh, don't get me wrong, it has its place, but I believe it's kind of be, um, systematic theology has be kind of become a way to box God up and so, we don't, so we get things all right. And it's, it's a Western sort of way of knowing facts. And can be useful at times, but as I get older, I believe that mystery and wonder have a, an equal place um, with systematic stuff. And Eastern the Orthodoxy is filled with lots of icons and pictures and ways that we meditate on the mystery and wonder of God, and it's not about boxing God up. A few years back, I attended a show about the Hubble telescope, and the images that were on this big screen that went over the entire ceiling of this place was just stunning. I, I was just flabbergasted looking at these pictures. Um, and it was, again, filled with this, this sense of wonder beyond myself. And I, I think existing in that space of mystery and knowing that we know so very little be, can, in a weird way, be comforting. And I think especially if it's wrapped up in the mystery of God, the mystery of the divine, beyond what we know. <laughs> and I think... I think we've, we've heard that here once before that um, uh, in, in times way back, believing that we know something about God was almost blasphemous. I think sometimes we need to bring that back a little bit. We really only know a little bit. Going back, David only knew a little bit, but it was a really significant little bit. The wonder in the stories that David carried carried David. The wonder and the mystery of those stories and like Steve Bell said, the minute we bring back wonder, God can speak. And I wonder sometimes if that's because we shut up long enough to listen. So David had stories and wonders and mystery from his past and history. What else did he have? Well, he had extensive training. A what? Excuse me? He had what? He had extensive training. As a what? As a shepherd. Okay. What kind of training is that? Well, protecting sheep. Okay. Ancient armies, armies had three kinds of warriors. The first was the cavalry. I've, I've practiced this, and I said cavalry about six times. They did not have that. They had cavalry. That was their first, which is horseback chariots, that kind of thing. Um, the second one they had was infantry, foot soldiers. That was the second one. The last in their lines were the projectile warriors. Those were archers or slingers. 
David was a practiced slinger. Paintings from medieval times show um, slingers hitting birds in the middle of the air. Um, Old Testament judges, slingers were said to be able to, to be within a hair's breadth of where they wanted to be. The Romans, I found this interesting, the Romans actually had a special set of tongs that they would use to pull out stones embedded in their warriors, gross as that is, um, because of these slingers. An Israeli defense minister recently showed that a, a slinger at 35 meters, and how far is that? Is that about the distance to the back of the wall here or something? Or a little farther than, farther than that, Rick, you think? The what? Okay, three, three, there you go, three first downs. <laughs> so so that, that's a little bit of a distance, yeah. Um, but, but this guy showed that a slinger at 35 meters, which is, a, to me, that's like 100 feet, right, plus? So uh, anyways, um, is about this, has about the same effect as a fair-size handgun. That's pretty, pretty staggering, I thought. So if you think about this, I've got a sword and a spear and a hundred pounds of gear that I'm carrying, and someone who's very nimble and very mobile and very agile has, in effect, a handgun and is deadly accurate with it. And the weakest part of me is, is um, open, which is my head. Um, picture that. What do you think the odds are now? Slim to none. So, David wasn't weak. He had his own skills. He practiced them over and over and over again in situations protecting sheep, the weakest animal. David, I think, most likely had a pretty good idea of what he was capable of. And if he'd indeed killed wild animals and that, um, he probably did have a good idea of it. Maybe to him this wasn't that different. And so, in a, in a sense, David wasn't really the underdog. The stone didn't need divine speed and strength. It was training that, that took that up. So sometimes when we look just at the surface, what is just right in front of us or before us, we miss what is or what really can be. And as I think about David and Goliath in this way, my perspective changes. Our daughter Nadine is dyslexic. Um, math and spelling were just a nightmare when she was growing up. I remember sitting at the kitchen table week after week practicing spelling. She would write out each word and over and over again, and she would do okay, and then next week I think those were gone, if she was lucky. And it must have been really hard for her. Um, kind of discouraging everything in her brain being mixed up, but she kept up week after week, year after year, and lots of things about school were a struggle for her. And she always would say, I am never going to work anywhere where I have to use a cash register or do math or something like that because I'm just going to mess it all up. Well, her and her husband a, a year ago moved out to Atlin, B.C., which is like two hours from Whitehorse in the middle of, like it's this tiny town, beautiful place in the middle of nowhere, though. Well, there's no care home out there where she is. That's where, where her training is. So for something to do, she finds herself a job at the local tiny little grocery store. But I'm only stocking shelves and helping out around that. So I'm all, that's all I'm doing. Little bit by little bit, the, the owner saw how good a worker she was and kept on giving her a little more and more. And lo and behold, one day, something happened and she had to work the till. Ooh, panic, terrifying. And so she ended up working the till for a while. 
until one day the owner came to her and looked, looked her straight in the eye and said, you know what? Every day you work, the you work the till, the till is out. No more than 10 cents. She was kind of flabbergasted. No more than 10 cents? So she had worked really hard, and her fear, her dyslexia, had actually driven her to be more careful. Her disability, if you want to call it that, turned into a strength. And I remember her calling us to tell us that, and we just told her how proud we were of her, and we are proud of her. But the training she had in her struggle was an asset. So from a different perspective, she was the best person there for the job. That was the reality. Who would have guessed it? You wouldn't have guessed that earlier, but that's the way it was. In a sense, the Goliath in her life didn't really have a chance. So David was able to stand firm because he had his mystery, his wonder, his stories. He was able to stand firm because he had a different perspective from what was just immediately in front of him and around him. So, I want to read this. Go back to... At a really low point in my life, I had read this whole piece of scripture in Ephesians 6. And, and what it is is, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from peace. And it goes on and on. But here's what I heard. Here's what I was at this really low point in my life. And here's really what I heard. And after you have done everything just to stand, the message I took to heart at this time was there was nothing I could do. Um, all I could do was stand there and try not to get knocked down, and if I get knocked down, to, take, to, get, to get back up again. Just try and stand. It's all you can do. Maybe somehow you'll make it through here against the odds, but nothing will be left in the end. Just, just stand, just, well, just because. It's this first impression of kind of David and Goliath, and this has been a mantra for me ever since. Two weeks ago, Joe's sermon contained the same verse, and I was able to hear the whole passage in a new light. And when I read it over again, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after everything is done, stand. Stand firm then. Stand firm then. In a sense, it was kind of like that idea of David to stand firm. And in Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, it says, and God made known to us the mystery of his will according to good pleasure, purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth under one head, even in Christ. And that is part of the mystery of God. The mystery of Christ in me, mystery of Christ in us. Being able to stand our ground, stand firm, be ready with this mystery kind of packaged up in behind us. I have some experience. I have some wisdom a bit. I also know that God is mystery and kind of encompasses everything. Everything will be okay in the very end. 
And two weeks ago, my perspective changed, and it was like the ground underneath my feet shifted. But it shifted in a way that I was able to feel more solid and firm. Maybe we all have felt the ground shift under us at times, and at times it can be unnerving and unsettling. I think as I get a little bit older, I'm beginning to enjoy having the ground shifted under me a little bit more because I seem to learn something and the shifting ground seems to shift in a way that I feel okay. And I hold all of those things, the mystery, the wonder in the background that God is and encompasses all. And at times when it shifts that mystery and that wonder, maybe it calls to us. And just like Steve Bell said, maybe when, you know, when we look at wonder that God shows up and God can speak and our perspective changes and we can stand firm. For me, what's the odds that an old carpenter is able to sit with somebody in their deepest, darkest pain and be okay there? And, and kind of walk alongside them as they continue to, to struggle along to see if they can get their perspective to change. So maybe the Goliath isn't quite what it seems. I'm not sure what this means for everybody, for individual struggles. I guess you're gonna kind of have to figure that out. But may God bless us with the wonder and perspective and ability to stand firm.